How about you? So, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible, so you know I'm not making this up. And then open them up, please. As we've gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God, we've actually gone through the first six books. We're in Judges on Wednesdays, by the way. And um, today, we, are, we go through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew. And we try to do a comparative study a bit on this. On Thursday, our, afternoon, our Thursday afternoon study literally takes the texts of the Gospels that compare to the Matthew that we're going through to see their unique uh, distinctions and how they portray Jesus in unique ways. So at least so you know that. Uh, but here I'll try to give you a little bit more of a conglomerative viewpoint uh, as we look at this, a conglomerative in regards to all of the texts. We pick it up today. Jesus has already, if you remember last week, Jesus went into Capernaum. He went into the house of Simon Peter uh, and his mother-in-law was sick. Simon Peter's, that is. Uh, mother-in-law was sick and Jesus went and touched her hand. She got up, which was a good thing. She was sick with a high fever, but he raised her up. And that was key because company was coming and the entire city shows up at the door. So it would be good to have a healthy mom-in-law when the entire city shows up for dinner. And they came and brought all of the possessed people. They came and they brought all of the uh, sick people. Anyone, what we read in Luke, anyone who had anyone who was sick, they brought them there. And Jesus personally, we read it in our text, personally ministered to every one of them. And I really do love that. Jesus never saw success as having an awful lot of people stand before him. He knew the danger of a multitude. And he knew that teaching would be required when he stood. And he only simply teaches when he's before a multitude other than perhaps feeds on a couple occasions and when the multitude shows up. But he's always big on the individuals, healing and reaching the individuals. And I want you to recognize Jesus just isn't into reaching you like a group. Isn't like he looks and says, oh, Calvary Chapel, I love those guys. He loves you by name. He's a good shepherd, the good shepherd, and he calls his sheep by name. And today we expect him to speak bespoke to you, not just to us as a group, because we're all coming from very different places. Matter of fact, geographically, as well as perhaps where we are in our walks. But the Lord has one destination, and that is to the center of his heart. And I do love that. And that's a, he, has a, he has a specific word he wants to speak to each of us. We are, as Jesus has done that, now we take it. If you remember, he gave a commanded part to the other side. That was verse 18. We're working our way to our text, which, by the way, will be verse 23. And there were two different people that stood up. We see a scribe, by the way, and then another one of his disciples. And in both cases, they give this kind of, I'll follow you. I'm coming to follow you, and Jesus makes sure, and I like this about him, that he doesn't give the easy sell. He doesn't just simply say, oh, that's so good. I don't want to tell you about the hard parts. He makes really clear that if you're going to follow him, it's going to be challenging. And he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the idea of it is, is we're aware foxes and birds of the air, especially in Scripture, they're thieves. I mean, neither of them are plush toys that you just want to cuddle. Foxes, by the way, they spoil the vines. They kill your chickens and steal and run off with them. They're basically thieving predators. Uh, on the other side of it, the birds of the air were the ones who stole the seed Jesus will give us in parable uh, in the first parable of chapter 13. But they're also the ones who pluck out your eyes and eat your flesh. And then again, there's not a warm fuzzy involved with that. And if there is, you should come to me later for counseling. 
In this, though, Jesus says, this is our home for thieves and for dead things. But it's not my home. And if you're going to follow me, this can't be yours either. You will never, ever again be at home on earth like you were before. Because it's not your home anymore. You've gotten a whole new permanent address. And we're weird in the sense that we're the only people with a permanent address that we've never seen. And this is one of the reasons why being in his word and being among other Christians is so important. Because it's easy to forget your permanent home when you're not around other people or the word to remind you what that looks like. Because every sense you have is encoding data about the world you live in right now. In just the same way that if you were in a hotel for more than a few days, and some of you have been on tour, you know what this is like. You stay in a hotel for more than a few days, it's, there's a part of you that starts to get so used to it, it starts to become kind of homey. But it is never to be home. I think it's one of the reasons God is kind enough to let them charge us such exorbitant rates. On the other side of it, then another disciple says, well, let me go and bury my dad. And we talked about the burial ritual and how that takes a whole year for the body to be put in a sarcophagus and how all of the flesh gets eaten to all that's left are the bones and dental records and how all that's put in an ossuary afterwards. And dad's been dead for a while. That's the point of it. It's the only thing that remains in his time that he waits is to get this inheritance. But I remind you, though, it told us that Jesus told his disciples to get in a boat. Let's get in a boat. And we're going to get to the other side. Now, before we even dive into our text, I do want to make this really clear. The other side was not a place we went to. And I better just say this right away. We better just pray before I even read because I'm already starting to teach. Lord, I just pray that you would, through your word, teach every one of us, speak profoundly. You know exactly how we understand. You know exactly how we hear. Be the Lord of my mouth to speak that which every one of us needs to hear individually as well as corporately. But then, Lord, be the Lord of our hearing and the way we interpret and the way we encode and the way we put into our hearts. Let all of that be radical and let it be truly personal and powerfully done here today for each of us. God, really, we really, really, really want to encounter you and be changed. So, Lord, let your word burst open and come alive and speak to our hearts today, we pray in Jesus, in your name. Amen. I, I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. And you can bet if I'm going to say that about me, I'm going to say that about everything. Test everything to the word of God. Now, uh, Daniel, if you would put up one of those maps, I just want to kind of point out a couple things here as we... Uh, kind of dive into our text. Uh, this is, by the way, a Google map of our area that we're looking at. And the reason I'm kind of pointing this out is I just kind of want to show you. It's also, as you can see, topographical. And what that means is it kind of shows you some of the layout of the land, uh, kind of what it looks like. Now, I want to point out something here. This is where these guys are at. They're right up here. <coughs> um, as they're up here, by the way, in Capernaum, Capernaum, which means city of Nahum or comfort, uh, as they're there, Jesus is going to give a command to depart to the other side of the sea. Well, the other side, obviously, is over this way. Now, why is that such a key? Because, well, over here was an area that was, first of all, part of Decapolis, which means it was run and owned. It was one of the ten cities of the Roman Empire. Uh, second, it was an area where they raised swine. We could that clearly from the text. It's also a place of graveyards, which we'll also get from our text if we read the counter text in Mark. 
Uh, it's basically a place where no good Jewish kid goes. Graveyards, pigs, Gentiles, oh my. That's the idea here. Now, for Jesus to do that, we have to be aware of the fact that there's something must be going on. But we do it out of obedience. Now, the East, and I challenge you to take a look in Scripture, the East always tends to have a very foreboding kind of inference to it. It was from the East the locusts came, and the lice came, if you will, in the, in the plagues when Moses actually stamped the ground. And in the, the East, by the way, that's desert. That's desert area. Ultimately, of course, beyond this becomes Syria. And we know how sweet of a place that is today. And then ultimately it's Iran and Iraq. I'm sorry, Iraq and Iran, actually. And, and it's, there's lots of desert. And when the wind blows from there, it's going to be a hot, unpleasant wind. And there's this foreboding that the East is just kind of a, well, it's kind of the place you stay away from. It's the Brixton, it's the Hackney, it's the wherever you want to put your place at. But I want you to look at the topography. Do you see this ridge right here? That's a place where you can respond with a yes or no. Do you guys see that ridge? Yes? Good. Thank you. Just making sure you're alive. Well, see how that dumps right into this. That ridge goes all the way out here, and there's a second ridge right here. Ultimately, what we're looking at are these natural fingers that reach out, and this is the Mediterranean. Now, the reason I say that is, when a wind blows onto the shore, it'll pick up in these tunnels, and they'll work their way over to the shore, and what that does is it creates a great windstorm. Now, for a bunch of superstitious fishermen, that would actually make a lot of sense, because what we get is, spooky winds are blowing us east. You get that. And so when the fishermen are out here, and I remind you, four of the guys on a boat that we're going to see here are fishermen. This is the sea that they fished in their whole life. This is nothing new for them. They've known of storms. Dad and Grandpa, you know, had told them of storms. We get that. Now, the reason I just want to point that out is if they're this way and a storm hits, something really strange happens. Because on the other side of this, this right here is a row of hills. These are the eastern hills. No wind comes from that direction because it's guarded. That's what makes it kind of rough. If a wind were to come from there, it would be a supernatural wind. It would be against the topography. So if they're here and they're rowing this way and a great storm happens, like it or not, it's a storm God made. Well, let's take a look at our story. It says this in verse 23. Now, when he got into the boat or a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us! We are perishing! You can't you know, dramatize version, but it's serious. But he said to them, why are you so fearful, O oh, you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You ever been in a conversation where the room is really, really loud, and you have to kind of shout, and then the whole room dies, and you're still talking loud? Well, you're like, oh, no, no, oh, oh, sorry. Wonder what it would have been like. I have a feeling that's what it was like in their hearts still screaming like little girls in peril while the entire thing dies as quickly as it rose. Verse 27 says, So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be 
that even the winds and the sea obey him. Strange, by the way, we're going to get next week, God willing, we'll get the, uh, the answer from the strangest of candidates. So this is where it starts. In Mark chapter 4, which is our counter text to this, and we're going to see this in both Mark and in Luke as well as here in Matthew. Jesus has, out of his own survival, picked a distant platform. Now, please hear me as a pastor who left the church. And one of the reasons we did the Lord had used to motivate us was because we'd come to a place much like what Jesus was experiencing there. That it got to the place where you no longer really get to serve people the way you want individually. You can only sort of serve them and you have to make every decision based on masses instead of on individuals. Now, that doesn't make it evil. It's just it's another man's ministry. I like knowing your names. Weird as it is, I even like knowing your problems. Not like weird, like I try to dig into your Facebook. I've never been on Facebook, truth be told. But I like being able to pray for you and being able to personally invest in a way that when something great happens, we could say, oh, we've been praying for Bree. You know, oh, the that sack. Or, okay, oh, look at what's happening with Gina. This, it's really, it's a cool thing. To be able to have names and put faces to it. But the mass has gotten so large now, and I remind you, this is after the ministry where Jesus just healed the entire town. Where he has gotten to a place now where he's going to have to separate himself from the crowd because the need is so great they're going to tear him apart. And his own family, what we read in Mark, his own family comes after him to rescue him because they basically think he's working himself to death. And so what Jesus does... Excuse me. What Jesus does is he has to go and find himself a a proper platform to speak from because they still want to hear from him. But he has to speak in a place where he's distant enough from them so they don't kill him. So where does he go? He goes on a boat. Now, it's interesting because the disciples had left those boats. I mean, what we read when Jesus called them, and we see that in Matthew 4, was that all of those fishermen, the four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which Mark makes clear, by the way, in Luke, that they were actually business partners. So the four of them had their own fishing business corporately. But they left their boats and their fathers and their nets, abandoned it all. They abandoned it all, says Luke, to follow Jesus. But it seems like somehow they, still, of course, still stayed with the family. The sons of Zebedee gave it to dad, Zebedee. And, and somewhere down the line, now Jesus has taken one of those boats and he's using it actually as a platform for teaching. Now, don't miss this. Chapters 5 through 7, I remind you, Jesus gave us this beautiful sermon. He taught us now that we had been transformed. And it was the school of Jesus. Chapter 8, now, what we really see is this application to the things he's taught us. And we're going to see that again. Now, what Mark and Luke make clear, by the way, is even what Jesus taught. Now, don't miss this because it sets us up. Now, what I'm trying to do is kind of look at it more from a conglomerative understanding of all three of our texts. And this is what he teaches on. The same thing, now we're going to pull from different sources and other texts, but here it's all one thing. And he teaches first about a sower that went to sow some seed. And it fell on four different soil types. Many of you are familiar with the parable. The, the variable was not the seed, it was the soils. And ultimately what he was going to tell us is the soil is the condition of a human heart and the seed is the word of God. And the, the difference is faith, really what faith is. I mean, in one case there's none and it bounces right off and the birds of the air take it. In the second case it's shallow and don't miss that because it's shallow, the soil, that when the sun comes up and scorches it, it hasn't have enough root to sustain it and it withers and dies. And he says that's what happens because of persecution that comes because of the word. 
And I do believe we live in a world right now, especially the Christian world, that is extremely shallow in their faith. And I could say we could be part of that. And the way that we see it is the easiest way to see a shallow faith is how it crumbles under the pressure or persecution of the word. It's the lack of root. It scorches, it withers. And then there's the third where it's mixed with thorns or weeds, if you will. And he says, and that's really the cares and the worries of the world and the desires for other things. And what happens is it gets choked to death. But then in the last one, there was a good seed or there's a good soil. And with that good soil, the difference is not that it grows up. The first, the second, third and fourth quadrants all did that. It isn't just that it starts to grow leaves, if you will. The second, third and fourth seem to have done that. But the fourth one and only the fourth one really bears fruit. There's really the difference. But he moves then from this text. Excuse me. And as he moves from that text, we're going to see that everything he talks about from that, from that, then he talks about a lamp. If you really have faith, you're not going to hide it. And he always associates, by the way, faith with boldness. And, and, and with that, then he says, you take that lamp and you put it on a lampstand, because what in the world would you do hiding it? That deserves no purpose. If I made you a light, why would I hide you? And then he moves from that to whatever measure you use. Now, notice the application. If you really do have faith, and I'm going to elevate you, you're going to use that faith. But the faith that you have, if you're willing to spend it, use it wisely, faith being trust, well, then clearly then, I'll give you more. I mean, to where are you about? And I see this issue. There's faith, and then there's application to that faith. And then he moves on from that, and he talks about a seed that grows even at night. Even while you're sleeping, it can grow. You wake up one day, and you realize, wow, this has really grown. Kind of like those crazy brambles in my back garden. It's like we've had, when the students were here, they trimmed those things back. And they've already, I mean, I think they grow faster than bamboo. One of these days, I'm waiting for it to grow up and be like, feed me. It's scary how quickly those things grow on our back. But it's like it grows, and, you, and really, to be honest, though it need be nurtured, though it need be tended to, though it need be invested in, it's going to grow like your faith. But then he goes and he challenges us about a mustard seed, that though it grows, the birds of the air, the things that have not gotten a positive write-up, will make their very home and headquarters in the structure of the very thing that you've actually, if you let it. And I see faith, and then application, and then faith, and then application. And here's the fun part. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. They're stuck. I mean, what do you do? We're a British culture. Even if Jesus taught crazy things, would you jump out of the boat and swim to shore? You sit there quietly and you're stuck listening to him as he teaches us about faith. And he goes, now let's go. But somewhere in my mind, if I were one of those guys and Jesus said, all right, we're going to go to the other side. And then he begins to teach. I would be partly distracted by the fact that we're going to go to the other side, a place I've never been. I mean, these guys, these fishermen, by the way, for what it's worth, they were actually originally, can I get that map one last time, Dan? Thank you, by the way. They were originally from a place called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is right about there, and that's about as close as you're going to get. And so that was, we're going to think about between 1 and 2 o'clock on the, on the map. But, man, you don't go farther than that. The area there beyond that was what they would have called the toilet of Hippos. Hippos, by the way, where they raised horses beyond those eastern hills. And all the waste of it was where the uh, graveyard was. Now, with that said, Jesus has said, all right, let's go. He's taught us about faith. And as he's taught us about faith now, 
a word, by the way, that will be used, I don't know, is it 227 times in Scripture, by the way? Jesus has only said the word faith twice now in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point. Interestingly enough, once, and I find it interesting, when he had talked about worrying the first time, when he taught us in that classroom on the hill in chapters 5 through 7, and he says, why don't you look at birds? I want you to think about a flower, a lily. Those birds, they've done nothing to earn their food. But I feed them anyways. You never see birds starving to death. And let's face it, here, even in our, in our city, we're in a city. The fattest pigeons I've ever seen. Some of them I look at, I, I, I want to applaud them for flying. Like, how does that thing fly? He goes, look at, look at some flowers. Just consider how beautiful. And what did you do? What did it do to make itself so beautiful? Didn't do anything. So why do you worry? Why are you so worried about food? About where you're going to live? What you're going to wear? Oh, you little faith. Jesus introduces the word faith if he will, with a gentle rebuke. And what he tells us is somewhere in that, worrying tends to be, if you will, indicative of little faith. Not no faith, just little faith. Strange, though, the second time was in this chapter. When a Gentile, if you remember, centurion, calls Jesus because he has a servant that's at the point of death, tortured in his sickness, what we read. Jesus says he would go to him, and the centurion says, no, you really don't need to go. I understand authority. I understand this. If I submit to Rome's authority, I am granted authority because of it. You've submitted to the greatest throne, and thus the greatest power is yours. You could just command it. I understand commanding. I'm a commander. All you have to do is command it. And it's only one of two times in all of Scripture that Jesus marvels. Here, at the faith of a Gentile, and in Mark and Luke, at the lack of faith of the, of the, of the Jews in Nazareth. Well, so the two times I see is one where he says, why are you so worried, you of little faith? And then here, in this chapter, where he says, I've not found such great faith even in all of Israel. Now, hear me as we dive into our text. I do want to make a couple things clear, and I'm just going to lay out some simple guidelines on what faith is, and then let's see how what we see is this application. If you will, what a storm is in the simplest sense is a test to apply your faith. That's it. It is important to recognize that God does ordain storms. It tells us, by the way, for what it's worth, and don't just believe me, Psalm 107, twice, by the way, in 25 and 27, it says that he raises the storm, and he also calms it. Storms can be something God raises himself. And it's something he alone can still. You can't still a storm. That's one of the beauties of a storm. That's what we hate about a storm. Is if we are like anything like the control freak that we pretend not to be. Storms are a horrible thing. Because storms leave us helpless in that situation. But what he does tell us in Isaiah 25, by the way, verse 4. As that he is an ever-consistent refuge 
from the storm. God may raise a storm just so that you can find refuge in him. I recognize this. One of my children, I don't want to say which one because I don't want to embarrass you. You can just think of them both. Has been quite frightened by thunderstorms, lightning specifically in thunder. I love them. Now, my whole life I've been, you know, kind of indifferent. I think they're cool in their own way. I joke about how God's bowling or whatever the case is. But the reason I love them is because what it does to one of my children. Because when the storm hits, I'm the one they look for. And they're there hanging out with me. How do I lose for that? And I see in the in, in this very weird way, I see the heart of God in that saying, man, if I, if I gave you a storm right now, you would be where I want you. In Zephaniah 3.17, it tells us among the things that we love to grasp about how he takes delight in us and rejoices over us with singing. But right in between those two, the meat of that sandwich, and he'll quiet you with his love. They shouldn't be intimidated. Oh, yeah, this one has one bar. We'll see how long that lasts. That's not a new one. If it was, get your money back. All right, so here we go. So hear me. <clears throat> one thing that makes clear, by the way, in Scripture is that God uses storms to take down the enemy. Isaiah 29, by the way, verse 6, will make clear. It says, with storm and tempest and with the flame devouring fire. The Lord says that the enemies, in this case, those led by false prophets, will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder, earthquake, and such. And Ezekiel 13.11, again, false prophets setting up these weakened walls because of their lack. They're saying, well, don't worry, God's got the whole thing covered, but they're not dealing with their sin and they're not seeking to get right with it. It talks about building these unplastered walls. And I like the fact that God can take the same enemies and he can tear down those weak walls built by the enemy. The storms that you might be so afraid of would be the very things that God will take down the enemy in your life, tear down the walls that he's built. And certainly that's going to be the case here. So faith, a couple quick things, and then let's dive into our text and develop it a bit with the other two texts in comparison. The word in the Greek is the word pistucho. By the way, it's only used twice. Or it's, well, it's not used in the Old Testament because that's in Hebrew and Aramaic. But you only really see the word faith a couple times in in Scripture, in the Old Testament, strangely enough, although the, the concept, of course, is clear from the very beginning. But the kind of key, chief text of that, of course, is Habakkuk 2.4, which says that the just will live by faith. But the word in the Greek, pistuho, in its simplest sense, it's not a fancy word. It just means trust. That's all it means. It does tell us, by the way, for what it's worth in Romans 12.3, 
that God has given every man, and that's a woman too, by the way, a measure of it. Everyone gets a measure of faith. We all have faith. The issue is not whether you have faith, it's where you spend it. I imagine, by the way, when every one of you came in today, you probably didn't check the integrity of the pew you sat in. Probably, I mean, think about the faith you would exercise there. I mean, granted, that might have caused you a little bit of damage. But how many of you took public transportation today? The bus driver, think about it, the bus driver, have you met him? How do you know he doesn't want to die? How do you know he doesn't want to take you with? To be honest, the bus driver that was uh, the bus that I took this morning, it was debatable the whole time I was on it. I had never gotten to the train station so quickly. It was unbelievable. People were falling out of their seats. It was kind of fun to watch. And then I got on a train. I didn't even get to see the guy who drove that thing. I mean, was the last time you actually kind of knocked on the door and said, excuse me, can we talk for a moment before I get on this thing? I just want to make sure. We're not going to fight with your wife or whatever the case. I mean, think about the, you know, you ever get in a plane? Not only can you not see, but you get that little, and that's about all you get, right? And you're like, well, but if, you know, I'll go when it's my time, but what if it's the pilot's time? I mean, then we all go. I mean, and I'm, I'm, you know me, I'm not an Eeyore. The whole point of it is think of the, the faith you exercised. Think of the faith you exercised. And I guarantee you, every scar you have was because you spent foolishly. You put your faith in someone or something that really wasn't worth the trust you spent. You know, the worst part is sometimes you knew it. That's the worst part. When you know that it was a stupid investment. It's like when you're on, when you're watching the telly and that thing comes on, you know, it's like, and then they like talk so fast at the end of it. Like that shouldn't be, that shouldn't alarm you, right? Oh, it's this thing and you're going to love it. It's going to change everything in your world. And it's like, give me a kidney and all your children, you know, and, and you're like, what? Oh, don't worry about that. Go ahead. Here's my credit card number. And like in the end of it all, like they're repossessing your couches. You're like, what happened? And you knew it. You were like, oh, it's okay. It's going to work its way out. You're like, what happened? And then someone says words like love, and you're like, you shrivel inside, or this, you know, I know what love did to me. Don't talk to me about love, right? But the reason, here's the worst part. It wasn't love that did that to you. That's obvious. The worst part is often you were the one who did it. You spent it, and then you're like, oh. But there's something inside. The problem is there's still an appetite. There's still an appetite to be loved. There's still an appetite to be important. There's still an appetite to have purpose. And in all of those things, you're still hungry for it. But now you're scared because you've been bitten. You're like, I feel like I've used up my faith. So you know what I'm going to do from this point on? I'm going to trust. Here's the, here's the brilliant part. Ready? I'm going to trust me. But you were the one who made the choices in the first place. How do you trust you after that? You were the one who spent it. That's like, gosh, every time I give you some money, you spend it on something crazy. So you have my wallet. That's what you're saying. And the enemy wants us to believe we're the master of our, de- our destiny and then we could be wise. But here's the good news. If you feel like you've spent it, 
in the book of Romans, again, chapter 10 this time, verse 17, it says that faith comes by hearing and that the word of God. So here's the good news, beloved. Right now in this room, God is making a deposit in your account. And he's saying, spend wisely. Well, how do I know I've spent wisely? How do I know my faith is really spent in the places I tell you it's spent? The storm. There's the problem. It's in these challenges and in these battles where we start to realize, because it's in those moments we have to cash in on what we spent. We have to actually use the product. And so here they are, and they follow Jesus. And it is important to recognize in this storm, this is not a storm of disobedience. This is a storm of obedience because they got in the boat because he told them to. And he was there, and then he taught them about faith. And now he says, now, let's try it out. Let's try out that faith of yours. And you've heard this story, right? The guy draws the tightrope walks across it and says, how many of you believe I can walk across it with a wheelbarrow? And most of them raise their hand and they say, all right, now how many of you want to get in the wheelbarrow? Let's try that faith out of yours. So walk with me in this. This is what it says. He got into his boat. His disciples followed him. And again, disciple, mathitikas, it just means students. So we get the idea school still in session. It's important to recognize that Jesus' platform is still going to be the case. The boat was his platform for teaching. It's going to be his platform for application. And just because the verbal, just because the verbal teaching ends does not mean school dismisses. You're going to have to walk out these doors today and start doing application. So, suddenly a great tempest arose in the sea so that the boat was covered by the waves. And I go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It tells us in Mark chapter 4, verse 37, countertext, that the great windstorm arose. So we know it was the wind that caused it. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Luke 8.23 says, But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake. It says, As it came down on the lake, it says that they were filling with water, and they were in jeopardy. Now, that doesn't mean that they were playing the game. They were actually, the Bible makes clear, they were going to die unless something changed. It really was that simple. And as I read this, I've got to tell you, as a, as a writer myself, there's something that really stands out to me, and then I realize that God loves to use object pictures to give us parallel lessons. That's what a parable is, right? Where he gives us a story to help us understand something else. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but think what's going on with that boat. The disciples had to get in it by obedience. If they were going to trust Jesus, they were going to have to get in that boat. And when they got in that boat, Jesus taught. 
When they were in that boat, Jesus taught them. But now, it wasn't the boat that was in jeopardy first. The boat was being challenged. It was the people that were in jeopardy. Did you notice that? It doesn't say anywhere in this that the boat was going to get tossed to shreds. What it does say, though, is that the people were going to get tossed to shreds. And that was a bit of a problem. Now, why is that important? I'll tell you why that was important. Because the boat, as I look at it, represents my faith. And if I'm going to trust Jesus, I have to actually start walking in that faith. And if I'm going to do that, what happens is the moment I start walking in that faith, Jesus speaks to me and teaches me. And as he teaches me, I go, oh, this is so rich. I go, all right, God, I get it. I get it. But it was the boat that was getting battered. It was the waves that were making their way into the boat. It was the wind that was tossing the boat. But it was the water that was getting in. I didn't realize this is the problem in a storm, beloved. Because in this storm, by the way, what we have here is we have Jesus nestled safely in this boat. Katiyucho is the word, by the way. Katiyucho is the idea, really, of just resting. I mean, we kind of look at it as Jesus' song, some serious logs there. But the word simply means that he's resting. Now he's had a long day. He's been healing an awful lot of people, and now he's taught. And, and he knows what's going on in this situation, but he's easy to find. And here I am, I'm in a situation where I'm trusting God, I think I am, I'm obeying Him, and I get in this thing, I can't steer this thing now, and this wind comes out of nowhere, and I'm like, oh my goodness, and stuff is pouring in, and it's being challenged, and I feel like I'm tossed around, and I can see in all of this, I've lost control. Now when I lose control, I have two options. One is, fight to get control. Have you ever been there? Let's be honest. The challenge is there, and I'm just going to fight. I'm going to get control. I'm going to get control one way or another. Hold on. Stop everything. i got to get control. And, and what happens is we, we freak out, and we fail, and we fall just like the house that was built on the sand when the storms came that he promised would come. And all of a sudden, there I am, and my hands are, my knuckles are white, and I'm, like, I'm just damaged in every way from the stress of this situation, and I'm trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. Or I can turn to Jesus. And I could say, Jesus, um, my, my faith is filling with water right now. The waves are making their way into my faith. The wind is tossing my faith around right now. And because the circumstances that are happening in my life right now, I'm so well acquainted with these details. And I'm so much less acquainted with the one who's resting on the ship. And I think it's interesting. And then we kind of almost look at it like, what in the world is Jesus doing sleeping but I'd rather use the word that, it, that it's mostly translated, and that's the word resting. And here's the crazy part. If I look at that, it, told, it, told, it busts wide open for me, because here's the idea. I'm freaking out. He's resting. The winds are blowing. I'm freaking out. He's resting. The waves are coming, and they're getting into the boat. He's resting. At no point is he troubled. At no point is he going, whoa, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? There's no point where he's doing this. He's resting. And if I'm looking at everything but him, he's the only thing that's resting. And I kind of think, what kind of crazy miracle? Jesus is sleeping, the boat's flipping, and I get up. I can just see Jesus going, oh. 
And imagine you've got four fishermen, so figure out how this works. In the beginning, the wind kind of comes in, and you can see Peter going, don't worry about it, I've been in these kind of situations before. You know, Grandpa told me about stories like this, it's okay, this is what we're going to do. You know, you gotta, let's, let's tie this thing up, let's close up the sail because the wind's getting a little contrary here. Let's work this out. And what you do is you go to the experts. I mean, if I were like Matthew, the tax collector, I'd be like, oh, I guess we better listen to him. This is what he does. But then you know what happens is it gets worse. Sooner or later, it gets to the point where it goes beyond Peter's pay scale, beyond these four guys' experience. And what they get to this point is, what do you do then? You just start accusing people. Why aren't you bailing enough? Row harder! You're a big guy! I mean, think about what you do. If you were all fishermen, we wouldn't be in this mess. Twelve of us. There's only four fishermen. That's not enough to handle the ship. Or is it? But Jesus is... But by the time they get to him, they're convinced they're dead. Now, the three statements they make, and we're actually almost done here, but listen, the three statements they make are so telling because each one of them, and understand there's 12 of these guys, so there's enough of them to say stuff, and Jesus' responses then are going to be, excuse me, are going to be appropriate to that. It says in verse 25, then his disciples came to him. Now, how big is a boat like this? That Jesus is like asleep somewhere. Well, we actually have a picture. Go ahead, Daniel, if you'd show that. <coughs> this is a replica fishing boat, or actually this is a diagram of a fishing boat, but I kind of want to show you. Can you see here the comparison? That's just one of those big old yellow school buses, basically about the same size as one of the normal buses that can kill you like the one I was on this morning. This is kind of a UPS truck, and that's the way it's fit. So I would like you to consider that such a boat, by the way, is roughly the size of this pew. Roughly. That's the size we're on. We can, If we really were going to be generous, we go to the opposite sides of the pews on both sides. Now, let's fill it up with a guy that's probably five and a half feet tall, because the average Jewish person in those days was about five and a half feet tall. So, let me ask you, who in this room is five and a half feet tall? Okay, that's Sarah, that's Shante. Let's just bring up Sarah. Sarah, come here for a second. This is the benefit of being this kind of church. Okay, are you ready? Sarah, here's our boat. Sarah, you get to play the role of Jesus. How cool is that? That's so much better (laughs) than being the enemy. All right, she was offered that role, by the way. She's like, we want you to play Satan. Wow, thanks. All right, all right. Sorry, Sarah. Okay, just go ahead and lay on that pew for a second. But we won't have you there. Yeah, we won't. Yeah, we won't have you there for long because we don't want it to be like. Then she starts making noises. Okay. Now you guys do this. Stand up for a second and take a look at how much space she fills. Hi. Now does that kind of make you feel really weird? Hi, Sarah. That's why we had you because we figured if anyone can handle this, it'd be you. All right. Now we're going to talk about a boat roughly the size of where I'm standing to where Claudia is standing. Where Anna is standing. So that's the size of our boat. Now, you're going to put 12 guys in there. You're going to put a guy sleeping like this. Exactly how hard is it to find him? Thank you, Sarah. Now, here's the point. By the time, it's like you have to trip over Jesus. You have to kind of scoot around Jesus. You have been, in essence, modifying every course while the boat is twisting and turning and flipping. and all. You You have got to modify everything to try not to step on him. He's put himself in the way. And there we are. And here are the three statements. Are you ready for these? Good. That was great. That was very overwhelming. All right, listen. 
In verse 25, the one in Matthew says this. Lord, save us! We are perishing! Now, remember these moments. Lord, save us. We're perishing. Did you get that? You try it. Try it. No, give me some emotion. Give me once. Come on, this is we're not going far with this. So, try once. Lord, save us. We're perishing. Ready? And... Oh, that was good. I, I, felt, I was feeling it. This is the Mark text. By the way, this is Mark 440. I'm, actually, let's go beyond that. That's Mark 438. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Did you get the difference? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Your turn. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, what was the first one was? What was it in Matthew? Lord, save us. We're perishing. Mark, teacher, do you not care? We're parenting. Did you get the difference? Here's the third of them. Luke, master, master, we are perishing. Third one. Master, master, we are perishing. Oh, come on, you can be more than that. Okay, thank you. Now, let's just see how well you remember this. What did they call Jesus in Matthew? Good. What did they call him in Mark? Teacher. Beautiful. What did they call him in Luke? Master. Ooh. Did you get that so far? What? Now, in the three of them, which one did they say? Or which ones did they say we are perishing? Good. That's good. What else? Anyone of the other ones? Mark. Yeah. Good. Good. And Luke, you, could have, you couldn't lose. They were in all three. Just making it easy. Lord, save us. We're perishing. Which one was that? Matthew, beautiful. Good. Teacher, don't you care? We're perishing. Which one was that? Mark. Master, master, we're perishing. Luke, beautiful. Now, let's see how brilliant you are. You ready? What is the biggest difference between Matthew and Luke, other than the names they call him? Between Matthew and Luke. Beautiful. That's exactly it. Yeah, well done, Brie. Glad you came. All right. In Matthew, it says, Lord, Lord, save us. We're perishing. And in Luke, we're perishing. Did you miss the save us part? And the one in between? Don't you care? Did you get that? Now, Jesus' response is also threefold. Now, put those in your head for a second, and then I want you to try to figure out which one goes with each. A little bit of... Kidding. All right. Okay, listen. Here are the three statements. One of them, he's going to say this. Where is your faith? One, he's going to say, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Exactly. (laughs) One, where is that faith? Second one, how do you have no faith? Third one, it says this. 
Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? So we have little faith, no faith, and where is your faith? Let's start with maybe the easiest, although that's always an unfair thing to say because I know the answers. Which one do you think they would say when Jesus says, how is it you have no faith? Why? Yeah, okay, you know what, I think that that's well said. Yeah, I mean, it's like, don't you care? It's more than ability now, it's like his personality. Don't you care? Have you ever done that with God? God, don't you even care? The bill is due. God, don't you even care? It's like, boy, I don't see any trust at all in that prayer. Stranger, you're even... I mean, the funny thing is, like, why are you even talking to me? Don't you even care? I'm perishing. The issue isn't even, can't you get up and do something? At this point, notice, it's like, it's done. I'm just dead, and I'm blaming you. That's what you're saying, right? And he's like, you know, there is no faith in this conversation. And he's like, ironically, you're praying while you're saying this. Okay, I get that. So here's the other two now. <clears throat> There's, where is your faith? And there is... Why are you so fearful you have little faith? Did you get that? Little faith, where is it? Remember the two statements? Remember the difference between those two statements, Matthew and Luke? Was save us. And Luke is saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. That's it. And Matthew, Lord, save us. We're perishing. So which one's which? So which one is, where is your faith of the two? You got two choices. You're either right or you're wrong. See? 50-50. Just take a shout. Just, just, I'll tell you what. On the count of three, just say your answer and we'll all say them at once so no one will, you won't stand out. Ready? One, two, three. Well, then the answer is right. Because it, the reason he's asking where is because they're not asking him to save him. Did you get that? They're like, we're perishing. But they're not asking. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm aware of your situation. I would like you to ask me to help. Or better yet, to save you. I get that. And let me just say that that happens with us as well. There's the point where we're alerting God to something, but we're not asking. You know what I'm saying? We're like, God, mm, that person's getting crazy. Mm, this is really weird. This person's weirding me out. You can see God going, I'd really like to speak more than just you alerting me to what I'm aware of. I've already gotten the memo. I was aware, well aware of it before you ever